This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Simon Tanner. Simon is from dynamicplanning.ca, principal advisor at Dynamic Planning Partners. He spent about six years with a large insurance company, wanted to bring boutique financial planning service and advice to his clients, so he started Dynamic Planning Partners back in 2007. Now, Simon, it's kind of cool in your bio. I've got that your focus is on the client, identifying and understanding needs and assisting and establishing um, and implementing strategies to help folks achieve their goals. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Now, I know that you know, life's expensive, right, for everybody, but especially, I mean, I have the benefit of having another person in my home that shares with the costs and the all of that stuff, uh, but for single people, it's a very, very different story, and, and let's talk a little bit about that. Absolutely, yeah, it is. it, it, it does present some unique challenges. Uh, and you really hit on it there, Elaine, I think, with the, um, with the fact of not being able to share some of those expenses and the onus being put all on, that, on you financially as a single person individually. So it does bring some uh, unique financial factors uh, that can be a challenge, but also can present some opportunity for singles. Oh, cool. Well, let's talk about the challenges first and then, and then how to take on those solutions or at least the good news about them as well. Yeah. So I think one thing that I see oftentimes with singles is the challenge of balancing lifestyle spending and future saving. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that when you don't have maybe a family at home or someone at home that you're, uh, that you're sharing, uh, sharing some of your experiences with, that it tends, you tend to be going out more. And so social expenses are something that can be a challenge in balancing those social expenses. Another area that I'll see oftentimes uh, with singles is, is not being prepared for an emergency, not having that backup income. So it's really incumbent and important for them to, uh, to establish some emergency funds for, for some of those unforeseen expenses. And what, what's the best practice there, Simon? Because, you know, I've heard di- different benchmarks that are, that are out there. And, I, you know, for many clients that, that I see, um, you know, they don't have the emergency fund. You know, they were never able to save it. And that really it reduces the buffer of time they would have, you know, to really consider things, you know, in a very um, stress-free way if they had that emergency fund. So, you know, what, what's some best practices, a target, and how do you get there? Yeah, that's a great question, Blair. I think, uh, you know, oftentimes without the emergency fund, what you find people is falling back on debt and kind of working backwards mm-hmm. uh, with their financial plan and, and using debt instruments to fund those unforeseen expenses. So, um, you know, you'll see a lot of varying, and I've seen throughout my career through textbooks and, and, and courses and things, a lot of varying uh, uh, amounts and ways to save it. But really, it should be a, a bedrock of your financial plan or of your investment plan is saving you know, three to six months mm-hmm. of income uh, into a liquid 
you know, savings account or, or some sort of liquid investment towards, uh, towards uh, emergencies. Uh, three to six months, I think it can depend a little bit on, on the individual. When I'm sitting with people, it'll, it'll depend on job security, uh, how often they transition, what they've used in the past for emergency funds. So we'll kind of weigh that out on an individual basis generally. But, uh, but as a rule of thumb, we like to use three to six months of, uh, of income for an emergency fund. Now, could you help me, Simon, figure out how to do that? Because that's a, that's a pretty tall order today to be able to put that, that amount of money consistently aside, even if you start slow, uh, you know, and, and start, start with, slow, with uh, small amounts. Yeah, Elaine, I think that's, that, that, that's a common challenge for people, and they'll look at it and view it as, as, as a really large mountain. Wow, they think three or six months income, and, and I don't feel that I'm, uh, that, I'm, that I'm able to save anything right now. And yeah. that's going to start with the bedrock of a financial plan and starting with a budget, right? Is, is really looking at what's coming in and what's going out each month and a detailed budget, not what I would call a cocktail napkin budget where I just write down. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm you know, a fan of that cocktail napkin budget, Simon. Yeah, the problem is the cocktail napkin budget usually comes with the expense of the cocktail. So yes. you're not doing your budget any favors with it. That's very true. But the, the, the cocktail napkin budget is, is what I call when somebody's just writing down what they think their most recent expenses are. And that can be a challenge because what I spent this month isn't necessarily what I'm going to spend next month. So if I just say, oh, here's what I, where I spent my money or here's where I think I'm going to spend my money, um, that's just using what's top of mind. So I like using, you know, I like recommending people to use a detailed budget sheet or an app. There's some great apps out there, uh, Mint being one of them that's probably the most popular um, for budgeting and really use itemized expenses. And, and, and I think what that, that, that detailed budget can do is it allows you to, to see some of those uh, maybe off-forgotten expenses or those annual expenses that I should be saving for on a monthly basis. Yeah, just throwing in a plug for Mint. I was uh, happy that you mentioned that too, um, Simon, because I think that that's one of the best apps that's out there. I love it that you don't have to go through the tedium of entering all your transactions. Um, you have to have a little bit of trust because you give them access, you know, to your banking and things like that. But they put in all of your sources of information and then basically categorize things for you. So for our listeners, yeah, I would definitely endorse. It's a good app, and I think it's free as well, at least for the basic version. Wow, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I think one thing Blair there is is that when you're when you're you know when you're having all that data input um that can be really beneficial for some but in my experience that doesn't work for others right they're not as technologically savvy so i'm not you know mint's great for those that it's great for and a conventional you know excel spreadsheet budget is great for those that it's great for there's no right or wrong way to do it as long as it's thorough you're doing it you're reviewing it and you're revising it mm-hmm. i think those are the kind of the three keys uh, doing it, obviously, you run into people with, you know, procrastination in our financial planning is always something that uh, that we battle with. Mm-hmm. Revising it is kind of coming back and looking at, okay, here's what I thought I was going to spend on an item. What did I actually spend on the item? And and then uh, reviewing it and saying, okay, how can I make uh, how can I make my um, you know make my expenses budget for next month in a in a in a more efficient fashion. Yeah, those are some great best practices for, for budgeting. It sounds you know very similar to a counseling session we would give on budgeting. That's just really excellent insight, Simon. Thank you. My pleasure. Let's look at um, sort of the areas that you could 
So let's say you've looked at your budget, you've come in over what you thought you were doing, and you are a single person living, let's say, in a, in a, in a property that maybe you could have room for one other person as well. Uh, let's look at easy-to-trim expenses. What would they be, or what have you found that they are? Absolutely. I think uh, there you, you, you give a great opportunity for some shared housing costs. If, if you're in a situation or if you're, uh, you know, looking at, at uh, relocating or, or looking to uh, at accommodations, then, you know, consider, consider shared housing costs. Having a roommate can really reduce some of those costs of, um, of, of housing costs, which, you know, as we know, are, are extremely expensive and high in, uh, in our markets. So, and super uh, tight, right, Simon? I mean, look at our vacancy rate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, our rental so, vacancy rate. Yeah, very tight. Yeah, so looking and, 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 and looking for, for, for opportunities there for some of those shared housing costs can, can be a great way to trim those expenses and free up some cash flow getting to talking, uh, you know, talking about what we were getting at earlier, Elaine, is, is that, you know, if we can free up cash flow, then that's going to enable us to start, you know, building that emergency fund slowly and not looking at it as such a large mountain, but take it, you know, every 50 bucks or 100 bucks at a time and build that three to six month buffer that we want. Yeah, one one of my colleagues at Sands and Associates, what she's done is um, she had you know rather largest house um, in, in New Westminster, and for years and years she took in uh, international language mm-hmm. students. So she said it was the most the most rich part of her, of her life was coming home at night, hearing about their days and sharing a meal, and you know helping them with English and different things like that. And now she's got friends around the world. You know she was off to Brazil last year, I think Austria as well. So you know there's different ways of roommate it isn't just you know someone that's there all the time. There are different ways you could come come at it. Absolutely. I think those are, the, you know, bringing in the student, bringing in a roommate. And I think that there can be some ancillary benefit to that as well, because it brings somebody else in your house and maybe makes uh, after hours or after work, uh, gives you some incentive to stay in and entertain in and dine in and, and, mm-hmm. and eat with somebody else. And save money. <laughs> which prevents us from yeah. going out and, and, uh, and dining out and entertaining out, uh, you know, multiple times per week. And again, you can kind of have that, uh, that kill two birds with one stone and, and, and really enhance your savings and trim your expenses. Yeah, you're sharing in food costs and and just the cost of living in the place too, right? I mean, all of those things come into play at that point. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, what about increasing your income? Because I know lots of people think, oh, well, that's what I need to do. Yeah, and that's a little easier said than done for many, right? We'd all love to increase our income. Um, uh, what are some ways that we can do that uh, and again, a lot of this is going to come back to lifestyle and choice, right? And financial planning is all about the choices that we make. Um, you know, you can look towards second job or, or, or overtime, picking up overtime within your, uh, within your existing job. That's a great way I see a lot of people increase their income for uh, either to reduce their, you know, to reduce their debt or increase their savings or if they're working towards some goals. Those are great ways. Another thing I find, Elaine, is that People can really look if they pay attention within their company to any bonus programs that may that there may be, uh, whether they be company incentives or performance bonuses, whatever the case is. You know, people that pay attention to those can really uh, can really increase their income through uh, through that method as well if they're available to them. Let's talk a little bit about financial planning and how that's different for singles than it is for couples. Are there some key things that that they need to pay attention to? 
Yeah, Elaine, I think that there's, uh, there are some key differences. I think that, uh, as we spoke about earlier in the segment, uh, the onus is all on the individual. You don't have that backup second income um, for the unforeseen. So I think in, 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 in some financial planning facets like risk management planning or insurance planning, uh, singles really need to be paying attention to things like their disability insurance, whether they have it at work or whether they have an individual plan. Um, you know, their ability to earn an income is their greatest asset. Yeah. And they really want to take that time to uh, to be aware of what they have, if they're fortunate enough to have a benefits program at work, um, be aware of that and see if there's any gaps where they need to fill that in. So that can be a core uh, difference, whereas families may be looking more at income replacement in the case of death and a focus on life insurance type thing. Right. I think that, the you know, that would often be a, a first priority for a, for a family situation where, where others are dependent on one's income, whereas in a single house, you know, single income situation, uh, or, you know, for singles, we'd be looking more at that uh, personal income or living income continuation. So things like disability insurance would be, would be one area where I think, um, you know, there's, there's a bit of a difference from, from the family planning aspect things. And pay attention to the actual fine detail of those uh, disability insurance um, packages or programs as well, because there, there are some differences, some bold differences in the programs. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, there's, there, disability is one of the most detailed insurance products in the marketplace. And I really recommend anybody, instead of just reading through your, um, through your benefits booklet or through your policy on your own, sit down with a professional, have them explain it to you, understand what nuances are in your plan, understand some of the tax considerations that may be in there. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, fine print in uh, disability insurance and and really having a good understanding of what you've got, what you're paying for it, and what it's providing you is is very important. Thank you, Simon. We've been talking with Simon Tanner, dynamicplanning.ca. He's principal advisor at Dynamic Planning Partners. Uh, Easy to access, again, the website, dynamicplanning.ca. Simon, thank you so much. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about in this segment, so many folks sign their names to financial commitments before they completely understand what it is they're signing. So we're going to run through some common before you sign scenarios and some really good basics uh, things you need to check before you make that, uh, before you before you sign that piece of paper. Yeah, the dreaded fine print in some ways. It is, mm-hmm. but boy, oh boy, like you say, knowing is not owing, right? Yeah, that's a big slogan that we use, a hashtag on our Twitter, knowing is not owing. And what we mean by that is once you understand, you know, the rules of the game, you know, what's going on, what everyone's able to do or not able to do, that's when you can start to make a plan to get yourself out of debt and to deal with it. And if you know enough to ask the right questions, you might even avoid being in a bad situation in the first place. Yeah, and all the stress and all the anxiety that comes with that. So let's get in there, Blair. Let's mm-hmm. talk about what uh, what to pay attention to. Yeah. So let's talk about if you're taking on new debt, for example. So, you know, you've, you've either applied for a credit card or you went to the bank or maybe it's even private financing. What are the key things that you really need to consider? So, you know, some basic areas, and this should, some of it's common sense, but, you know, what are the terms and what are the interest? 
you know, when are the payments due? Is it going to, are they going to withdraw it out of your bank account on a certain date? You have to make the payments yourself, you know, again, just the nuts and bolts. Um, What portion of your payment goes to the principal and which to interest? Boy, it took me a while before I figured that out. It wasn't until Mm -hmm. I had my first mortgage that you, oh, really? This doesn't, not all of the money that I'm paying goes to the principal and pays off the house? What? It's going to take me... 500 years, Uh right? And it even gets better. You know, there are some loans that are interest only. So all you do every month is you pay the interest, but you never pay down the principal. Really? You'd want to know if you're in that type of a loan ahead of time, right? I had no idea there Mm -hmm. were loans like that that existed. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, sometimes for a good reason and sometimes just, hey, this is a bad structure of a loan. So just just be aware. Okay. Uh, You know, what are the penalty structures? Is there a penalty for making a late payment or for missing a payment? You know, for an NSF, for example, your Mm -hmm. bank alone might charge you $50. Is that going to be doubled by the the creditor that didn't get paid as well? Are they going to double up on the NSF fee? Are they going to understand, hey, these things happen and your bank hits you hard enough? That can make a big difference. Yeah, big difference. Wow, that's a lot of money. You know, another one to consider is can you pay the debt off early without penalty? So you may have an interest rate and this thing needs to run for a number of years, but if something changes, do you have a prepayment option here that, you know, you can prepay and save yourself a bunch of interest or are they going to hold you to every month times the interest charge and you don't save any money by paying off sooner? Yeah, I always, uh, I always dislike that. I just think it's wrong. I think if you should, if you're able to pay something off, you should be allowed to pay it off and not be yep. penalized for it. Oh yeah, exactly. There's, there's a time value of money. You're giving the creditor money earlier than they would have it. They get some value out of that and they should share that the, is exactly. the principle there. That's what I think. You know, the last point here, and this is hugely important, um, but are you committing to pledge an asset when you're securing this debt? Right. Um, you know, there are certain providers and, you know, they change names every once in a while, um, but they offer some very high interest financing, but they take security over your household goods. So they ask, you know, what do you have in your house? You know, you got an Xbox, you got a bike, you got a couch. Okay, we <laughs> now have security on those goods. And if you don't pay us, we have the right to come and get those goods. Yeah. Okay. And you've signed you've signed that approval when you signed mm-hmm. that document. Now, would they actually come and get those goods? No, it's going to cost them more than what your couch is worth for them to, you know, cart it out the door. But if you pledge those assets, they have the right to do that. And they have the right to continually tell you, hey, we're going to come and get these assets and just create anxiety that way. And it could be a vehicle. Mm-hmm. It could be all kinds of things. Yeah. All right. We've talked before about how other people's debts can have an impact. What sort of situations should be reviewed beforehand? Well, definitely co-signing is, you know, the number one thing where, you know, a meeting that I'm having with someone, we can be, you know, all in cloud nine. Okay, we can fix your debt. You know, we're going to stop the interest. We're going to do a consumer proposal, so on and so forth. And then they tell me, well, what about, you know, this debt here that, you know, my parents or my brother, my sister, whoever co-signed for? What happens to that? And the unfortunate thing is when you co-sign somebody's debt, you're doing what's called giving joint and several liability. It means you're agreeing to be responsible for 100% of the debt, not 50-50, not 70-30 or whatever. It's if an individual doesn't pay and you have co-signed the debt, you're on the hook for 100% of that debt. So in meetings where I'm at, I'll be saying, okay, we can get it. You're going to pay back 30% of the debt over time and everything is great. What's going to happen to your co-signer is the bank is going to go to them and say, okay, we're going to get 30% from Jack here. We want the rest 70% from you, co-signer. And that can be a very awkward conversation and it can be very difficult for the person doing the proposal, knowing this is what they need to do. 
but it's going to create a hangover effect on the person that's co-signed to the extent that they're going to you know, be on the hook for whatever is not paid in the proposal. Right. And probably who co-signed out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, right? I mean, that's why people generally co-sign for something. Well, they, they do it for that. And they also do it based on an assumption that it's never going to be called in. Yes. Oh yeah, I'm signing my name here, but this guy's always good for it. He's always, always going to pay this yeah. debt back. So, you know, my advice first off is when is it wise to co-sign a debt? Almost never. And if it is wise, do it knowing that you have the wherewithal, the ability, and the intention to repay the debt in full if it comes to that. Really important. Really important. Okay, what else? Co-signing a debt, not a good idea. What about your, uh, let's talk about the reduction in your credit rating or debt collector contacting you. How would that affect you and your relationship with the other borrower? I mean, that's what mm-hmm. we've just said, right? It impacts yeah. them big time. It, it could, yeah. If this if this debt that you're being delinquent on, if they go to the co-signer and the co-signer says, well, I'm not paying it, it's not my debt. Well, legally, I'm, su- I'm sorry it is. Um, then the co-signer's credit rating can start to get hit as well. Right. Now, sometimes, you know, co-signing can be very explicit, sign on the dotted line to be responsible for this debt, or it can be a little bit more insidious, uh, meaning that, you know, your bank might offer you a supplementary card. You know, your husband or wife has a card and they want the other spouse to have a card. Mm -hmm. You need to be very careful because sometimes just by using that card, you can get yourself added to the account. Um, You can be responsible for having to pay back that amount as well. So it's the same effect as if you had co-signed. Right. Okay. Um, let's continue on then. Uh, you said, don't assume that because the card was issued to the other person and the secondary card thing, Mm -hmm. all borrowers have the right to receive information from the lender about the loan. Mm -hmm. So that means I, I have access to that information as a co-signer, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So you could go to the bank and say, okay, well tell me is the loan up to date and what's going on. So that can help to protect your credit a little bit. Um, and if you've been added as a secondary card holder, typically you're going to get the statements, both names are on the statements. And usually if both names are on a statement, it means that that is going to be owed by both people. Okay. What about in a marriage situation? Yeah, this one's definitely counterintuitive because I heard, you know, my whole life, you know, if you marry somebody, you're marrying your debt. And I saw people in my life, you know, if one person had a big student debt and the other person had a bunch of assets, they got married and they made the couple financial decision that we're going to take some assets, we're going to pay off the collective debt, thinking that we're going to be better off. The answer here is that there's no automatic liability that's created just by getting married. So it's possible if one person has assets and the other person has a bunch of debt and they get married, it's possible for that one person to keep all of their assets and not have anything in jeopardy and the other spouse to deal with their debts in a consumer proposal, in a personal bankruptcy or whatever, and have zero impact on the other spouse. So you can imagine from the couple's perspective, they can either have no assets and no debt because they paid everything off, or they could have a bunch of assets and no debt because one partner decided to file a proposal or did a bankruptcy to deal with their issues because they understood that just marrying somebody doesn't mean that you've got to pay off their debts. Now, is it just an old wives' tale? Is that why we automatically think that? Yeah, I think so. Wow, that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, government debt, unsecured debts, unless you've signed to be responsible for it, you getting married doesn't change a darn thing. And it's really important to remember. If any of this information resonates with you, uh, the website, Sands and Associates website, sands-trustee.com is terrific. It's got just a lot of really good questions and a ton of answers and information and content that then you can think about and then make the phone call if that's what you want to do. It makes good sense. 1-800-661-3030 to get that free consultation with someone like Blair at Sands and Associates. They've got 15 offices in 
British Columbia. That includes the Lower Mainland, the Interior, and Vancouver Island. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Sands & Associates, get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation. Blair Manton, we're talking about debt. Mm-hmm. I'm we in, do. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm in debt. Now what do I do? What deep, are my options, buddy? D- deep breath first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so first off is understanding you do have options. You have a lot more options than the person who's, you know, coming at you through the phone from a collection agency might tell you at the first step. So you got a bunch of options. We're going to go through five of them today, and they don't Good. all apply to every situation, but probably some of them will be a little counterintuitive, maybe things you didn't you didn't think about. Excellent. Okay, let's do it. Yeah, so let's start. What's my first one? Well, the first one I think is probably the most counterintuitive, and it's one that that bears, you know, considering. First option is just to do nothing. See, that would be my first option always. Mm -hmm. Do nothing. That's what I live by. Do nothing at this point. Well, and sometimes that's the right thing because sometimes actions taken in haste aren't always the right actions. You know, you don't understand always the long-term consequences. But what I mean by do nothing is to really understand what are the rights and responsibilities you have versus your creditors in this situation. And in general, most people think their creditors have so much more power than they actually do that most people think, I've got no ability to do nothing. These guys are going to be at my door tomorrow telling all my neighbors and carting me off to jail. And that's the fear and the stress and the mm-hmm. shame and all that stuff coming together at once, right? Exactly, yeah. But the, the fact is, um, you know, for certain profiles of individuals, you know, for example, if I have someone in my office who's, you know, 80 years old, who's just earning pensions um, and has a little bit of credit card debt that, you know, kind of got out of control or maybe they had it when they were retired and they just never paid it off, you know, sometimes the answer there is not to say, well, just keep making the minimum payments until you shuffle off this earth. The answer is to say, well, you know what? All you're doing is just continuing on a minimum payment hamster wheel. You're never going to pay this debt off. Your best option here is to actually do nothing, to stop paying on your debts and to force your creditors to make a decision. The decision your creditors have to make if you do nothing is, are they going to sue you? Are they going to actually take steps to force you to pay this debt? They're going to incur legal costs to do so and maybe or maybe not get a judgment against you. Or are they just going to realize that they're not going to collect this debt and write it off? And what people need to understand is the creditors only have two years to make that determination. So again, if the 80-year-old person is sitting in my office and I'd say, when's your last payment? Oh, I haven't paid in about a year and a half. I'd be telling them, well, you know, six months from now, you can stop worrying about this debt because after two years from your last payment, they can never sue you. They can never take you to court, never make you responsible for this debt legally. Wow. I can't imagine too many people taking that, making that option, right? It just goes against everything that you'd think, mm-hmm. you know, it's not exactly doing the right thing, Blair. Well, you know, it, it's some ways. I know what you know, you're saying. Yeah, you know, in some ways you incurred the debt and yes, you should try to pay it back. Yeah. But most of the time when I sit down with someone, they probably paid the debt back, you know, three times over. Fair but enough. with with 20% interest working against them, you know, and they've got a decision to make, you know, do I eat or do I pay interest? Well, the right answer is you eat um, and you understand that you can't 
can't pay the interest and the world isn't going to end because you can't pay a debt. It's not a criminal matter. This is a civil matter between parties. Yeah, no, good point. Good point. I would think too with that, um, I, I would, the proviso would be phone you as well, mm-hmm. right? Do nothing and yeah. phone you. Oh yeah. And you know, definitely this, this is a case of sometimes the best advice is free advice. You know, any consultation that you come into, you don't pay anything to the trustee and we'll definitely take you through this whole thing, which no one makes any fees out of you doing nothing, but you're a better informed consumer. Yeah. And again, for someone who's at the, you know, the end of their, their working life, their credit life, it's probably the right option for someone who's, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, who, you know, wants to buy a house in the future, who wants to tackle things head on. It's not their long-term option, but it could be in the short term, you know, if they've just been laid off or they've just, you know, gotten divorced or been diagnosed with an illness, you know, the last thing they need to be doing is worrying about is someone going to show up at their door the next day. So if they understand if they take no action in general, creditors aren't going to do a whole lot to them. Okay. So let's say I'm going to going to take some action. I'm mm-hmm. not going to not do anything, but I'm mm-hmm. going to do something. What should I do? Well, so some things that people consider, you know, right off the top, if you decide you're going to take some action. Most of the time people look at their debts and they say, you know what, I think I can probably pay this debt off, but the interest is killing me. You know, the interest from a store credit card is 29%, yeah. from the bank cards is 19%, and that's working against me. So people think, oh, I've heard this consolidation loan type of thing. Let's explore that. Isn't there a song out there that we hear all the time, consolidating your loans? Yikes. Mm, yeah, if you own your home, we can get oh, you a loan. Oh, dear. <laughs> there, there's a bunch of uh, right? things that are out there. And essentially what you're doing is you're getting one bank to pay off all of your other debt. And then you're going to pay that bank that's, you know, stepped into the shoes of your other creditors there. But you're going to pay them a reduced amount of interest. So, you know, maybe instead of 19 or 29%, maybe it's 12% interest. So, you know, sounds good. It sounds better than what you were doing. But, it's always a but, um, the challenge here is you really need to address the underlying cause of how you got into debt. And a consolidation loan typically doesn't do that because I've seen this again and again and again, um, is people consolidate their debts, their credit cards are back to zero, and they don't chop up the cards or put them in the freezer or do anything. After a few months, they suddenly figure, well, I got some room on this card, I'm going to start to use it again. And then before you know it, you've got a debt built up similar to the debt that you had consolidated, and now you've got two sets of payments that you're not able to make. And I just want to throw in a plug here. The one thing about Sands and Associates, while they'll help you do a whole bunch of the, the paperwork stuff, they'll, they also provide counseling. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the most important uh, pieces that you offer mm-hmm. to oh, folks. Yeah. And it's rewarding on both sides. It's rewarding to the individual because they got a lot of knowledge that they didn't have before. They don't feel judged at any point. That's our goal here is we're all people and you know people make mistakes and don't deserve to be judged for them. But also from our perspective as professionals, the journey people have, you know, from a first counseling to a second counseling to when we see them when they finished a bankruptcy or a proposal, it's transformative. It, it's remarkable. It you know, makes me happy to come to work to see the transformation in people. That's nice. All right. What, what next? Well, so you decided you're going to take some action and, you know, maybe you've tried a consolidation loan or you've been denied and we didn't touch on this, but consolidation loans, they're typically pretty tough to qualify for unless you have a whole lot of assets. See, that's Uh, interesting. I didn't think that. Yeah. So usually you have to have a house with a very minimal mortgage or you have to have a bunch of savings. So it's, as with many things, the people that don't typically need the consolidation are the easiest ones to qualify for it. Um, So, you know, that's a piece. But if you tried consolidating and either worked or it didn't, you know, quite often people think, okay, let's see a debt advisor, but let's, you know, go a little bit of an innocuous route. Let's go something that doesn't sound too threatening. And that would be to see a credit counselor. 
Sure. Sounds good. Right. You know, some of them are not-for-profit charity services, you know, do a lot of good work in the community. So, you know, it sounds quite good. Um, but there's a couple caveats, a couple buyer bewares that you need, you need to consider here. Let's talk about those. Yeah. So, so first off, what you need to understand um, is, you know, essentially nobody's without an objective or nobody's without a point of view in the whole debt management space. And you need to kind of follow the money here and figure out, well, who is behind credit counseling and what's their objective and, you know, who is the the master, so to speak. And if you look at the largest not-for-profit credit counselors in Canada, they're all funded by the Canadian banks. So a way to consider this is that a credit counselor is a really nice, touchy-feely collection agent on behalf of the banks. So you need to understand that discussions you would have with a collection agent who's being very aggressive with you um, are a little bit different than someone who's put on a hat of, you know, a charity, a not-for-profit service, but the actual substance is the same. So the province of Ontario actually forces not-for-profit credit counseling agencies to register as collection agents so that the the, the people are actually better informed. This is what you're getting. You're talking to a collection agent here. That's so interesting. Yeah, BC hasn't done that. Now, the tool that a credit counselor can offer here is it's not all bad. You know, sometimes this is exactly what someone needs. What a credit counselor can do is forgetting all about government debt because they can't deal with that at all. But for things like, you know, the banks that fund the credit grantors, if you've got a bank credit card or things like that, a credit counselor can negotiate an interest freeze where you don't pay any further interest and they give you up to five years to pay off the full balance of what you owe. Okay. So if you're able to afford that, you know, that's a good option for you. If you can say, you know what, take the money that I have, divide it by, sort of take the debt that I have and divide it by 60 payments. That's about what I can afford to pay back. Well, credit counseling might be the right option for you. But I encourage people to only make that decision once you've considered all of the options we're going to talk today, because there are options that are significantly less expensive that actually will include government debt as well and that actually hurt your credit the same way as if you pay everything off completely. Right. So let's go to the next one. Let's go to that option, right? What a segue. Yeah, it's it's a good one too. Yeah, so the next option that I want to talk to you about, and again, there's some confusion here between, you know, a credit counseling plan and a consumer proposal. And we talk at length about a consumer proposal, and you see a lot of advertising about a credit counseling plan. But the biggest difference here is a consumer proposal stops the interest and reduces the debt. So in general, a consumer proposal, you'll pay back about a third of the debt, maybe a half, maybe a fifth. It all depends on the circumstances, but it's almost always less than the full amount. The reason for that is myself as a licensed insolvency trustee, I've got the authority of the federal government behind me. I can force creditors to reduce your debt. Okay, that's the power that I have credit counselor, essentially a collection agent, you know a collection agent doesn't have that power. No. They can't reduce debts. They can't force people to agree to a certain payment plan. They can't protect you from government debt. All of those things a consumer proposal can do. So if you owe the government any money, consumer proposal is going to be a better option. Um, If your debt is more significant than what you could afford to pay off, you know, in monthly payments over five years, if you can't afford to pay the whole thing off in full, consumer proposal is a great option for you. And again, a really big takeaway here, it hurts your credit the exact same as if you did the credit counseling plan and paid everything back. So for three times the cost, you actually don't get any benefit of going through a credit counseling plan. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to put it too. And of course, a, a licensed insolvency trustee, that's what you are. That's what Sands and Associates is. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. and not only, like we talked about earlier, do they do all the paperwork and work you through the process and give you a, a certain amount of money, which is totally um, 
uh, feasible for you to be able to pay off on a monthly basis. And there's a, a an element of counseling involved, yep. and they actually they actually want you to do well and mm-hmm. <laughs> succeed. And and there's an end date. Exactly. All of those things are correct. We want you back to zero. We want you to move on. And, you know, we'd love to help your friends and family, but hopefully you don't have repeat customers. Okay. And the last one, and yep. we've just got about a minute and a half to go, mm-hmm. is if you're not going to do a consumer proposal, then you consider bankruptcy. Yeah. And Yeah. And, you know, very quickly, bankruptcy is not the end of the world. You know, some people think of it like a financial death. It's really the opposite. It's an awakening. It's you get to start again. You get to restart, you know, to rehabilitate yourself and start again with no debt. You know, what a wonderful thing to face the world with no debt. Um, To go into bankruptcy in Canada, you don't need anybody's permission. You just have to owe more debt than you're able to realistically pay back. You sit down with the trustee. We review all the options with you. And if bankruptcy is the best option for you, we help you go forward and file those documents. For someone that's low income, bankruptcy can be over in nine months. So not six or seven years, but nine months. And for someone who earns a little bit more than that, bankruptcy is a year and nine months. So still inside of two years. And and you're the one who's going to help investigate that. Sands and Associates, they'll sit down with you and talk to you about the options that are available. Mm-hmm. And then you get to pick the very best one for you, which I think is, is really worth mentioning. The other cool thing about Sands and Associates, just as we wind up this topic, is that the website Website's terrific, sands-trustee.com. There are numerous frequently asked questions. So you don't even have to phone anybody or talk to anybody. Just go to the website and the amount of information that you'll get and you'll learn from it's well-written, easy to understand. If you want to make that call, 1-800-661-3030. You get a free consultation uh, making that call and to find an office near you. And you've got offices uh, all over the Lower Mainland and on Vancouver Island and in the interior as well. Mm -hmm. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Stallen with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com. On the line with us right now is Dr. Leanne Davies. Uh, Leanne is the founder and CEO of Agenomics. She has a PhD in aging, health, and well-being, and is the co-author of a book called When Life Bites You in the Wallet. Uh, Leanne, as we're going to find out, is pretty passionate about sharing her insights on population, professionals, philanthropists, and the general public, and what and how we can prepare and respect the changes that are coming as we age. Leanne, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Elaine. Thank you very much for including me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Leanne, it's it's Blair here. Um, I wonder if you can just start by explaining to us, what is the wealth effect? I know it's something you've, you've researched, you've written on quite extensively. So for our listeners, can you give us a sense of the wealth effect, what you mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, hi, Blair. It's great to speak to you again, and I'd love to talk about the wealth effect and certainly how it's viewed with an aging population. So the wealth effect really is an existing theory. It's not something new that's happened just with the increase of our house prices in some areas in Canada. Um, but what's different this time with the wealth effect, uh, where people start to feel that they have uh, a lot more money than they really have in their bank accounts, for example, because of the increase in, in the house prices, 
What's really different this time is this easy access to credit mm -hmm. and consumers looking at using the income that they're um, able to get through their house because they're going and getting loans against their house um, rather than using the income from their regular working stream uh, and really starting to feel that they have a lot more money available to them. And of course, that results in, in consumption that we wouldn't normally see in the population. So when I, I'm seeing these, you know, big bank ads that say you're richer than you think, um, I always, you know, turn, <laughs> kind of furrow my brow a little bit saying the clients that I see that, you know, they're definitely not richer than they think. And you're saying, Leanne, there, there's actually um, a whole, you know, phenomenon of that of people thinking that there's more wealth than actually exists. Yeah, to some degree. So does the wealth exist or not? Well, it exists on paper, right? When we see people's houses increasing so substantially uh, in value, at least what's on paper, and people look at that and say, well, I couldn't make that type of money when I'm working. Of course, I'm becoming much wealthier because I own that particular type of real estate. And then we see the additional effect of that, which is they buy more and more real estate, uh, and they're taking on more and more risk because of that easy access to credit. So the wealth effect is creating a behavior in these individuals that we wouldn't normally have seen. You also talk a great deal about gray debt. What's gray debt and how does it relate to the wealth, the effect, the wealth effect? So what we used to worry about was somebody, as they got older, entering into these later years, and especially their retirement years, uh, with some debt on their personal books. So the recommendation always was, if you're moving towards retirement, those last five years are really your launch pad into retirement, and you want to start organizing your finances in a way that you're not carrying any debt, you've got your mortgage paid off, that you're not taking on any pressure, uh, because in retirement, we don't know what will happen. The other types of things that we used to worry about with people as they got older was that there would be a change in health, um, that you may find yourself in a later year divorce, or you may find yourself caregiving for your older parent, and all of these can drain your finances as well. So that type of gray debt worried people as we started to look at how they'd move into retirement. But we've got a new phenomenon that's happening now, and it's, it's what I would refer to as this transgenerational look at debt, and it's something where older adults, so people who have children who are moving into their adult years or in their early adult years, um, are looking to help their children sort of jump into uh, a lifestyle that they feel is suitable for their children. And it's back to this fear of missing out. I hear more and more older adults say, I want to help my kid buy a house. In fact, I'm going to buy some real estate now with the intention that I know my kids won't be able to afford this in the future because of the escalation of real estate. So I'm going to have that house ready for them. And if it's a couple of kids, they can divide that up, but it gives them that jump start. We never saw that type of transgenerational look at debt before, and yet it's happening now day over with many, many people. It sure is. I'm, I hear that all the time amongst uh, my peers saying, you know, uh, you know, whoever son and daughter is, they can't afford to live in the lower mainland. Mm -hmm. So we've got to figure out a way to get them here or to support them. So now part of me thinks, oh, well, that's very kind and thoughtful. And, and there's parents continuing to, to give and look after their kids. What's the downside of that? 
Yeah, there's a couple of things that I think people aren't taking into consideration. So when we talk about this next generation coming into their adulthood, so these millennials born 1980 to 2000, it's a large group of young adults, but they're coming in with a whole different set of values than what the boomers, their parents had. They're coming in more flexible in how they handle life. They're looking for a work-life balance. They're looking for experiences. So the first comment I would make is be careful of putting your own boomer values onto the millennial generation. What you think they may want and the debt you may take on to make that happen may not be what they want in the end. The second caution I would have with that is when you start to buy things, this transgenerational purchasing, um, you're risking monetizing a relationship. The relationship within a family needs to be more at an emotional level. You don't want to be putting a dollar figure onto that. And so what that does create is the potential to have an insatiable relationship because dollar-wise, you'll never be able to satisfy someone's needs. They have to learn what their own needs are and how they're going to achieve them. That's a really hard thing, though, I think, for parents to even consider, the boomer parents to even sort of think about the ramifications of it. I mean, that's a... I mean, we've always looked after our kids. This is how we've done it. So we'll just continue to to do it, right? I mean, that would take a real shift in thinking. You may be 65 right now and healthy and active and independent. But let's face it, it does not continue that way. There are challenges that every one of us will face as we age. And those types of challenges require require money to support you. And I think most of us want to remain independent as long as we can. And it's money that will help you do that. It'll help you buy different services that as your health changes, you can leverage those services to really keep the, the type of lifestyle that you're able to enjoy independently. So think of yourself and try to picture yourself 20 years out as you're a much older adult. And in the end, that benefits your kids as well, because they're able to have their own independent lives, not worrying about the type of quality of life that you're experiencing. Yeah, interesting. Boy, oh boy. That's a real juxtaposition, though, to uh, to take. Because uh, as boomers, or as a boomer myself, uh, I've just gone through a long period where I've been, lo- I've been the one, or my siblings and I have been the ones that have been looking after the parents. But I don't think uh, I would be thinking about my children in that sort of similar way that I'm going to be in the same position as my parents parents were, right? Like that's mm. just, that that seems like that would be challenging. Sure. And, and that comes to the, the problem that we all have, which is the shift in how the relationship is. So as you cared for your parents, you and your siblings, you're shifting the relationship from a parent-child to really a relationship of an older adult who needs a mature adult to support them, a mature adult who cares for them. Um, And so your children and you will also have to experience that shift in your relationship. And talking about that over the many, many years that you have for that to evolve, I think will allow that to happen more naturally and prepare everyone for that shift to take place. Boy, so interesting, Leanne. Yeah, it it sounds like, a, Leanne, so much of what you're saying comes down to, you know, really have a good plan, really think think ahead of what's important to you, what's important to the people that you love, and realize that those might they, those might be different objectives. Any resources you'd like to share or anywhere we can refer, refer folks to learn more? Well, I think from a resource standpoint, um, the idea of 
reading how health will change in the future, relationships will change. The public library has many books that have been written about that um, that would appeal, I think, to all ages and lifestyles of boomers. I would tend to look at the lifestyle books rather than, than the financial books, rather than letting the financial picture be the only guide that you're following. Because it takes away, again, from that relationship emotional level. And quite frankly, as we age, the emotional side of it, I think, is really the part that's going to dominate and lead us and hopefully keep us in a high quality of life. For more information from Leanne Davies, Dr. Leanne Davies, her website, agenomics.ca. Thank you so much for joining us, Leanne. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.